Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Thanks, worship team. All right, grab your Bibles and meet me in Psalm 131. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 618 in that Bible, uh, Psalm 131. I'm not sure whose that is. Thanks, guys. So back in February, I was uh, up at my seminary. I'm doing uh, some coursework, and because of that, uh, I had to go up to Toronto. And so most of that I can do from home, but a few weeks a year I go up to Toronto. And so I was up for a week in February, and my prof on the first day of classes said, we're going to uh, live in this psalm for the week. And she didn't tell us what it was at first, but she said, we're going to find a psalm. Uh, we're going to just dwell on it for the week. You're going to have it memorized by the end. And I thought, oh man, because Psalm 119 is like 180 verses or something like that. Uh, but it ended up being Psalm 131, which is a little more manageable. But this has been one I've been meditating on since February. I just haven't been able to get it out of my head. And so uh, I'm excited to share this with you today. It's just a few verses as we go through it. Before we do, I want to show you a movie clip as we get going. And uh, as we jump in, uh, I'll explain more after, I think. But this is from the movie Dumbo, uh, the classic cartoon, not the creepy remake that just happened. And uh, it's a scene you might remember if you've seen the movie. And just to set it up, uh, Dumbo was the little baby elephant. Uh, he had been being tormented by some uh, mean kids at the circus. His mom got angry, went into a rage, came to his defense. And she has been locked up now because uh, they think that the elephant is crazy. And so Dumbo is coming to visit her now at night. Take a look. Just to me. 
And all of God's people said, I'm not crying, you're crying, shut up. <laughs> Something about a mother's love, a mother's comfort, right? And, and we didn't all maybe have that growing up, but there is something in us that knows that's what a mom is meant to be. We go to our mom for comfort. We go to our mom to dry our tears. Uh, even into the animal world, there is an understanding that that's something that moms do. Moms are there to protect and to comfort. And I just wanted that in mind as we get ready to jump into our text today, because uh, through much of scripture, God reveals himself as father. Uh, and uses some sort of traditionally masculine uh, pictures of who he is. But there are also some times in scripture where God reveals himself as mom at the same time. Because God is not a man or a woman. Both male and female find their image in God. God has all qualities. And this passage we look at today, there's a bit of the mothering picture of what God does and the comfort and peace that we find there. So let's take a look at our text today. We're in Psalm 131. Graciously, just a few short verses, as we had to memorize this one back in February. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. So that's one worth memorizing if you can pull it off, just a few short verses. But when you memorize the Word of God, uh, God brings it to mind. And I have had this scripture uh, in my mind constantly over the last number of months. And it brings a lot of hope and encouragement when God reminds you of his word. This is a Psalm of David. You probably have a note at the top there. Uh, written by King David, as many of the Psalms are. David, the man after God's own heart. Uh, David, the one who was revered in scripture as the one who just pursued after God, who reflected the heart of God. God, who is far from perfect. Uh, no one in scripture is perfect except for Jesus. But as far as mortal, sinful humans go, David is held up as the one. He was the one who was after God. And he wrote these beautiful psalms of worship. And David uh, was this tough guy. He was a warrior. Uh, he was brave and strong, and yet also had this, this very sort of emotional heart of worship uh, and, and uses these metaphors and these pictures in his worship as the Spirit breathes through him to glorify God and to teach us things about God. There's probably a note at the top of your thing as well that says a song of ascents. Uh, we don't know for sure exactly what that is, but a general bit of a consensus is these were songs that were sung when Israel went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. A number of times a year they had to go and make their offerings and sacrifices, and so Jerusalem was up on a hill, and so as they ascended the hill, they would sing these songs of worship as they were coming in and getting ready, and they were seeking to enter the gates with thanksgiving, enter the courts with praise, as the psalmist tells us to do. And so these songs were sung as a way of kind of to prepare to come into the presence of the Lord, to come and offer, offer your sacrifices. And so we're just going to walk through it this morning, these few short verses. Verse 1, the first part. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. Haughty is a fun word. It sounds snotty. There's something about it uh, that's just a little different than just proud or, or prideful. It is that. Uh, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. Haughty means proud. It means uh, snooty. It means condescending. It means uh, you think you're better than others. It's something that you would sort of put upon like a rich, snobby person who was looking down on people who made less money than them. 
Uh, and so the psalmist wants to make very clear as worship starts, Father, I am, I am bringing my heart in the right place. I'm not coming before you in worship with a proud heart. I am not haughty. I'm not looking down on others. I'm not thinking that I'm great. Because when we come into worship, part of the, just the very nature of worship is acknowledging that God is greater than ourselves. It's hard to be proud when you stack yourself up next to God. You can't exalt yourself when you are truly considering who he is. And when we're aware of our sinfulness and we're aware of our struggles, like we can't stand in the presence of a holy God and really be proud and haughty. So as David is coming into the presence of God to worship the Lord, he starts off acknowledging, all right, I am, I'm not coming in thinking I'm great. I know who you are, God. I'm coming in humble. My eyes are not haughty. Haughty eyes are something that uh, Scripture talks about in other places. And again, it really is a form of pride. And pride, I think, is maybe the most universal of human sin. It maybe is the most universal thing that everybody struggles with in one way or another. And your personal struggle might not be, hey, I think I'm so great, because some of us really actually struggle with our, our self-esteem. But pride is really any time we sin, because sin by its nature is pride. Sin by its nature is us saying, I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm doing it my way. And anytime we say, I'm doing it my way, we are by nature walking in pride. Anytime we say, I'm not going to follow the word, anytime we say, I'm going to choose that path of selfishness, I'm going to do what's best for me, that by its nature is pride. And so if we are sinners, which we are, if we have sinned, which we have, we have all struggled with that pride in some way because pride is the sheep that says, I don't need the shepherd, I know the best way to go, and I'm going to go my own way. And so this is something that we have all struggled with, and yet pride and, and this phrase, haughty eyes, uh, is something that God pushes back on multiple times in his word. Here is just once, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, number one. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Like, that's not a good list. We don't want to be found on that list. There are six things the Lord hates. We actually, just by fluke, we're talking about this in uh, our Bible study this morning. Ben Clausen was leading us, talking about some of the attributes of God. And we were saying, so much talk of the love of God, and that is good. And the Bible is full of talk of the love of God. We don't typically sing songs about the hatred of God, but there are things that he hates. And this is not an exhaustive list. It's really just sin in general is what he hates. But if you look at this list, haughty eyes, that pride, that, that thought that I'm going to do my own thing, that thought that I don't need to follow God's way, the thought that I am better than other people or other people are below me is on the same list as hands that shed innocent blood. And even though that is perhaps a worse crime in terms of the fallout, of course, and maybe in the seriousness of it, there's a list here of things that we really don't want to be walking in if we're going to be calling ourselves followers of Jesus. And so haughty eyes are right there at that top. The pride, the, that look of, of selfishness, arrogance, uh, I'm doing my own thing, is right there. And humility is not natural to us in our, our humanness, in our brokenness. Uh, we want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. I usually think I'm right most of the time. And I can be proven wrong on that. And that's what marriage is, right? <laughs> 
But, you know, when I have an idea, I honestly think it's the right idea. And if I stick up for the idea, it's because I believe it's the right idea. Like, I usually think my way is the right way to go. I'm not talking about when I'm violating the scriptures. But in life, when I, I've decided, I usually think I'm right. And sometimes I am, and sometimes I'm not. But humility is not natural to us, and humility before the Lord is not natural to us. We actually have to learn it. And that's very obvious if you've ever had children, right? A toddler's not naturally super humble or other-centered, very self-centered and about themselves. They want what they want, and they know what they want, and they are sure that they are right and that their parents are stupid. That lasts for a while, I've noticed, as, we, as the kids get older. That is not yet stopped entirely. But it's something that from the youngest of ages, like we have to teach our kids this. Once, when Kaylee was about two, we were working on a craft together and I'm not overly good at that stuff, but we were having fun, father-daughter bonding time. And as she was working on hers, it was good in like a two-year-old sort of way, right? Like it, it wasn't amazing, objectively, but she was working really hard and it was impressive that she was putting it together. And so uh, she said, Daddy, I think I'm doing a good job on this. And I looked at it and I said, you are, honey, you are. You are doing a good job. And she said, that's because I'm smart. And I mean, we tell her she's smart sometimes, and we want to affirm the gifts that we see. And I said, yes, honey, you are. That's right, you are smart. And then she said, I'm also beautiful. And I went, all right, that's okay. That's, yes, you are, but let's, let's learn some humility along the way. But she was confident, you got to give her that. She knew, <laughs> she knew some things about herself. But we actually, we have to teach our kids to obey. Right? It's not natural. We have to teach our kids to, to obey their parents. We have to teach our kids to obey the Lord. We have to teach our kids that they are not the center of the universe. We have to teach our kids to think about other people and not just themselves. Humility is something that has to be taught. It is something that we choose, and we have to actually willfully choose it. And that's what David is doing as he's starting. I'm not believing that David literally didn't have a touch of pride in his heart. I think we all have that. But as he comes into worship, he is humbling himself. He is saying, I am humbling my heart. I am humbling my eyes as I approach the King of Glory in order to give him worship. Second part of verse 1, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. There's two sides of it. One of it is I do not uh, consider myself great. I do not aspire to greatness. I do not aspire to make a great name for myself. I am not trying to climb the ladder of life. I don't try and exalt myself. I don't try to make myself greater. Jesus would tell a story uh, in Luke chapter 14 about the parable of the wedding seats. And at that time, there was quite a hierarchy in a wedding banquet. The, there were guests of honor, and then there were lesser seats. And so we do this a little bit today, where usually at a wedding, you know, the bride and the bridal party's at the front, and the parents will be up there. But there was quite a hierarchy there. And so when Jesus is telling the story, he says, when you come to a wedding, don't presume to take a seat of honor. Because if you take that seat and someone who is more honored than you comes along, the host is going to come and kick you out of that seat in front of everybody. You're going to be humiliated and you're going to end up sitting at the back. But he says, when you come to this place, he says, pick the seat of lowest honor. Pick the seat at the back. Don't seek to be near the center. Don't seek the spotlight. Don't seek position. Go take the lowest seat. And then the master of the ceremonies will come or the, the host will come and will say, hey, what are you doing way here in the back? Come and sit in a better seat. And Jesus says, because whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
And so we choose the path of humility as Christ followers. We don't seek position. We don't seek greatness. We don't seek glory for ourselves. We seek to humble ourselves, to take the lowly place, to take the servant's posture, giving glory to Jesus. And we trust that if he wants to, Jesus can move us up. If he wants to, Jesus can recognize us. If he wants to, he can make us great if he wants to do that. But we don't need to do that for ourselves. So we don't seek after greatness as followers of Jesus. We're going to get into that more in the fall as we jump into our sermon series. The other side of it is just the understanding in humility of maybe the most obvious statement I could possibly say today, which is God is God and we are not. We are not him. You remember the story of Job, and Job in a single day loses all of his children in a horrible accident, loses all of his wealth, all of his, his flocks, all of his uh, earthly possessions, everything just gets wiped out. He gets afflicted with a disease that is painful. Uh, his wife tells him, why don't you just go ahead and die, which is awesome encouragement from a spouse. His friends come along and they, they come on with the guise of we're coming to encourage Job, but they end up just taking chapters and chapters of the Bible to say, Job, you must have done something really bad for God to do this to you. And that was the extent of their encouragement. And so the book of Job, there's a little bit at the beginning that tells the story, and then most of the book is Job and his friends kind of debating with each other uh, about the nature of suffering and the nature of God. And Job saying, I really, I have walked uprightly before him. I really don't think that this is punishment for sin. And his friends saying, well, you must have done something. I mean, even your kids must have done something or they wouldn't be dead. And as they go back and forth, Job is lamenting to the Lord and saying things like, if I could only see him face to face, if I could only get an explanation for why this happened to me, if we could only face each other like in a court of law, and then I could know exactly what, what he's thinking and why this is happening because I deserve an answer. I've walked uprightly before God, and I just, I want to hear from him why this is happening to me. And then at the end of the book, God shows up. God responds, scripture says, out of the whirlwind, the Lord responds. And he says things like, he says, Job, all right, brace yourself like a man and answer these questions. And then he goes on for chapter after chapter saying things like this, Job 38. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And he goes on and he goes on and he goes on. He goes, Job, where are you uh, when the, the deer in the woods is about to give birth to her fawn? Where, where were you uh, when, when I am there counting down until the birth happens, watching over her? Where were you when Leviathan was defeated? Where were you? All these great incredible, cosmic, glorious things. Job, where were you? If you are so wise, if you are so powerful, where were you when that happened? At the end of it, Job says, surely I, I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. And it's not the most satisfying answer, but God's answer to Job is essentially, Job, I am God and you are not. And the creation does not make demands of the creator. It's not a polite thing to say, but it is know your place when it comes to humanity and God. 
and not that it's wrong to ask the question and not that it's wrong to seek. And God in his grace at times reveals himself and answers tough questions and does those things for us. But we don't have the right to demand it. We are not entitled to it because he is God and we are not. And so when the psalmist begins, Lord, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty, I am not trying to be God in my own life. I am not trying to master everything. I am not trying to understand everything. There was a, a bit of a kerfuffle uh, on social media in the last few weeks. You may have seen in the Christian world where some, a few high-profile Christian leaders uh, either renounced the Christian faith or, or at least said, we're not really buying it, we're struggling with it. Uh, and so that was sort of all over Christian news, that these, a few of these big leaders were struggling. And for a lot of them, uh, the nature of the struggle was there are tough questions that, that I can't find answers to. And so therefore, I'm done. And I mean, that doesn't work when my kids ask me questions and I don't give them full answers, right? There are things I, I tell my kids and there's things I don't tell my kids. And, and, you know, we all parent in different ways, but in our house, like the kids are not running the show and are not entitled to things. We share things with them. We share information with them. I mean, they're entitled to food and stuff. Don't, don't misunderstand that. <laughs> they're entitled to basic human rights in our house. But I just mean when it comes to answers, there are times when because I said so is the only answer I need to give as dad. And when they get older, they will understand more, but at younger ages, they can't. And so recently, uh, we had to take Matt in. He had to get some blood tested. And he's fine, but uh, the doctor just wanted to make sure and rule out some things. And so uh, he hadn't done that before. And so you're trying to prepare him because he does amazing with needles, he said sarcastically. Uh, and this is like a kind of a long needle. And so trying to prepare him and saying, you know what, it's, it'll hurt, but just for a second, and you're going to be brave, and you're going to be great. Uh, but that doesn't really matter when we're in the room. And I'm saying, look at the wall. Don't look at your arm. Look at the wall. And then he looks at the last second just as she pulls out the needle with a huge vial on the end of it. And then he screamed for a second. And then he calmed down and did all right. But you can't sort of logic a six-year-old into, you know what? It's going to hurt for a second, but it's for the greater good of serving your health. Because all the kid knows is I don't want the metal pointy thing jabbed into my skin. That is not unreasonable. We're supposed to act that way, right? We're, every instinct says we shouldn't let sharp things pierce our skin. And so you can't reason with them. And so there's a point where it's just, you know what? It has to happen, buddy. It has to happen. I know you don't like it. I know it's hard and it's going to hurt a little bit, but it just has to happen. It just has to. And you just have to trust that mom and dad are on your side and we know what's best for you and this is going to be for your good. There's going to be an element of walking with God that is going to involve mystery. We are not going to understand everything. And that's part of a bit of my concern with Western Christianity. We are so intellectually based, we are so logically based that if we're creating a culture that says you can only grab onto something if you understand it perfectly, then we're just always going to fail when it comes to God because we can't understand him perfectly. This is going to be a lifelong journey of learning about him more and more. And if we can't grasp a hold of every part of him and understand everything, there's an element of faith that says, I'm going to be okay with the mystery because I trust that he is good nonetheless, even if it doesn't always make sense. I'm gonna trust that he is working for my good all the time. 
I'm going to trust that even though sometimes things hurt, that's going to be for my greater good, ultimately, and that there will be coming a day in eternity when all of it will make sense, if it even matters at all, which I don't think that it will, maybe. But to be able to say there's an element of walking with him, God could have really easily said at the end of Job, actually, Job, what happened here is Satan came knocking and we started to call, like he could have told him everything about why it happened. Job's just saying, can you just show me what I've done wrong? God could have said, Job, you actually didn't do anything wrong. That's not what this is about. But God doesn't even say that at the end. God just establishes his glory and majesty and says, Job, you're just going to have to trust that I'm God. And then God blesses his life, and there's restoration, and there is redemption. God shows his goodness for the end of the story. I've shared the story before uh, a number of years ago. One of my mentors, uh, Matt and his wife Lisa, their daughter Sarah passed away of cancer at age 10. And that's a soul-searching, gut-wrenching season for anybody who knew her. And nothing compared to the parents, of course. But we were all struggling through it. And Lisa, who was Sarah's mom, got up at the funeral. And so, I mean, this is just days after her daughter passed away. And all the prayer, all the fasting, all of the why, Lord, right? Job's lament. And when Lisa stood up, she just said, she said, honestly, we are, of course, we are devastated. We are heartbroken. We are questioning. We are disappointed. But she said, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life demanding answers that God never promises in this lifetime. And I'm not going to let anything shake the fact that I believe that he is good and I am putting all of my hope in him. And that was a number of years ago. And if you were to meet Matt and Lisa now, you would be blown away at how sweet they have stayed. Like, again, legitimately questioning things for sure, legitimately devastated, of course, but they have remained so faith-filled and so sweet and so noble in their pursuit of the Lord. And, and they don't have answers to the why of things, and they might not get those answers in this life, but they are choosing to put their hope in the God that, that has saved them and shown his goodness to them in a million other ways and said, okay, we don't understand this peace, and yet we will put our hope in him. Because he has shown his faithfulness and goodness in a million other ways. And, and he has saved our souls, and he has given us peace. And, and they haven't gotten bitter like so many would in that scenario. They haven't gotten angry. They have been able to embrace something of the mystery of who God is, the fact that we won't get answers to everything in this life, and we actually need to be okay with that. And that's really the point of what David is getting at, is that in this life, we humble ourselves, we understand that we're not God, and that is the very heart of worship and the very heart of walking with him. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. And so even when I'm agitated because I want to know more, right? Or I want to understand more, or I, I need to know an answer to these great questions, David says, but I have found that place of peace. I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child. If you remember the weaning process, it's not a peaceful time in the household. And when a baby's born and the baby is nursing, and, and I didn't nurse 
personally, obviously, but I found even when I was feeding the baby, even with a bottle, and some of you have, have raised your babies on formula, like there is something so precious and intimate about those moments, right? Just the baby's quiet, you're holding them close, they are resting with you, they are literally being given life, they're being given food, they are content while they're feeding. Uh, and a baby doesn't have a lot of words, obviously, right away, and so they have screaming cries, and that's about it. That's how they communicate their will. And so when they are hungry, they scream and they cry. And when you're, especially when you're a young parent, you realize, like, well, the, the best cure is just to stick a bottle in there, right? When the crying won't stop, you just, you get a bottle in there, and it doesn't really matter if the baby's upset about something else. That's enough to calm the kid down. But then there is a point where the baby needs to move beyond that. The baby is maturing. The baby needs to go to the next level. Solid foods are on the way. Again, you can't sort of logically explain to the child at that age, here's what's going to happen. But I promise you, food's going to be great once you get there. Because all the kid knows is you're taking away its source of life, its source of comfort, its source of everything that it, that it loves, and not just the food itself, but the closeness to mom and dad, the intimacy there, the, the connection, the being held, like we saw in that clip, being close. And you're teaching that kid the only thing you've ever known that brings you that level of intimacy and comfort, we're actually not doing that anymore, kid. And so a weaned child is not in a good place. A weaned child is struggling to understand why it can't get the very thing that it wants the most in the world. But mom knows better. And mom says, okay, I, I actually have to deny you this for your good because you're growing up, you're maturing. This is actually going to be a really good thing. You can't live on milk forever. And so David says, like a, a weaned child, I have calmed and quieted myself. And to me, that was such a key that jumped out at me in this verse. I have calmed and quieted myself. Not even the Lord has calmed me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I have pressed in. I have sought out peace. I have just turned my brain down. I have figured out ways to calm and quiet myself. We have a responsibility here. Not just that God does it, but we calm and quiet ourselves. If I feel like it, I could be mad all the time about something. If I feel like it, I can look at the state of the world, I can look at the frustrations of my life, I can look at the chaos I see around me, I can look at the things that you're carrying, and I could be angry all the time if I wanted to be. But the psalmist says, I have calmed and quieted myself. We actually have to do something here. Because peace, you may have noticed, is not typically automatic in life. There's just too much that can rob us of it. We actually have to make the effort towards it. And today's peace might not last tomorrow, right? It might be good for today, and then something else happens tomorrow, and we lose that sense of peace. But David has figured something out that we all need to figure out, which is that there is a place with the Lord where we calm and we quiet ourselves. And when the baby uh, is in the weaning phase and just is saying, I want what I want, and I want it now, and I'm agitated because I'm not getting what I want now, there is a place of peace beyond that, where mom actually, for the baby's good, denies the baby what it wants so that it can grow up, but there is still peace available even for that weaning baby. The baby doesn't have to be that agitated and, of course, is going to grow out of it. But there is a, an element where mom says, I got to say no to you on what you want in order to help you grow, in order to help you be healthy, in order to do what is best for you, I'm going to say no. 
And that's something that we all have to face in our walk with God, that there are times where he says no to what our hearts want. There are times we don't get what we want. There are times where there is a denial. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane really essentially hears a no from heaven where he says, Father, if there is any way, I don't have to go to the cross. If there is any way, I don't have to do this. And heaven is silent. And Jesus says, but I'll do whatever you will. There is an implicit no there. No, son, there is no other way for this to happen. And as we, in our human struggle, all have to deal with the fact that at times God doesn't do things the way we would like to do them, uh, even Jesus had to wrestle with that a bit in his humanity. To have the full human experience, Jesus had to experience silence from heaven. Once in his life, he had to have that experience because that is something that is common to all of us. Jesus enters into that with us. But a hungry child says, I want what I want, and I want it now. What's in it for me? A wean child is at peace with mom. And I remember weaning my kids, and you might remember too, like when you hold them a certain way, uh, like the kids would just turn their heads into me and start chomping on my shirt. Like, you know, there's something here, I know. I'm going, wrong gender, guys, sorry, nothing. I got nothing, literally nothing for you. But, you know, when kids are hungry, like you remember, especially when they're really little, like their heads are always looking, right? And they do a cute little like head wiggle when they latch on to the bottle or whatever, and, and they're just always kind of in a, an agitated state until they get what they want, and then they find that sense of peace. They relax, okay. There's comfort, there's food, my belly's getting full. Ah, that feels good. But a wean child gets to that place without it, right? A wean child is at peace no matter what. A wean child is at peace even if they're not getting what they want. They have learned that mom is still that source of comfort. Mom is still that source of peace. And even if they don't get what they want the most, there is still a place of peace for them with mom. Mom is still the comforter, even in her denial. Charles Spurgeon wrote a commentary on this, and he said, for a wean child, the child is no longer angry with his mother, but buries his head in that very bosom after which he pined so grievously. He is weaned on his mother rather than from her. So there's not a disconnect happening. It's actually, oh, there's a greater level of intimacy now. There's a greater level of peace available as we seek the Lord and connect with him in that way. And so David wraps it up with verse 3. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Because of everything he's already said, because we humble ourselves before the Lord, because we don't have haughty eyes, because we are not concerning ourselves with great matters, we're not trying to make ourselves look incredible, we are not trying to climb the ladder, we are not trying to say that God owes us an explanation for every single thing. Because of all of that, and because we find that place of peace anyway, because God is the source of peace, because of all of that, we can put our hope in the Lord who gives us that blessing, who gives us that peace. As the source of all peace, we connect with him. He is where our peace comes from. So how do we do this? A few practical things just as we wrap up. First of all, prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't be anxious about anything. If we're anxious about anything in our lives, this verse is for you. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And as we do that, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If we're not praying, we shouldn't expect a whole lot of peace, because prayer is where we connect with God, who is the source of all peace. 
And when I say prayer, I don't just mean the asking of things. I mean that is the asking, that is the worship, that is the, the time in his presence, the thanksgiving, that is spending time in the word, that is however you commune with God and connect with him the best. He is the source of all peace, and we can't find peace if we're not connecting to that source. So if we're not praying, if we're not connecting with him, we shouldn't expect a lot of peace in our lives. If we do this, the promise is the peace of God, which is beyond understanding, the peace of God that exists even when there should be no peace, the peace of God that is above every circumstance and everything that we face, that peace will guard your hearts and your minds as we connect with him. So the first is prayer. The second is purity. We are constantly seeking to leave behind our sin. We are constantly seeking to walk in the holy way, the way of Jesus. We're constantly seeking to be more like him. If I've got sin in my life, I shouldn't expect a lot of peace there. Because sin by its nature gets in the way of our relationship with God. Sin by its nature pulls us away from him. Sin by its nature is all about the flesh and all about ourselves. And when we're in the flesh and when we're in ourselves, we're not connecting with that source of peace. We are not uh, going in the way that leads to peace. And so we start with our prayer. We move on to our purity, that we are seeking to be pure in our actions, pure in our words, pure in our thoughts, pure in our hearts. The more we pray, by the way, the purer we will be as we are transformed more and more into his image. So we, we embrace prayer. We seekingly embrace purity. And then finally, we just practice Peace of God is not something maybe natural to us. It takes a bit of effort to get the hang of it. It takes an effort to figure out what do we do when we lose it? How do we get it back? It takes some practice to figure out how do I connect with God the best? And what does that look like? It takes some practice to get over sin. And sometimes in these things, we don't do great and we fall off the bike. And then just like our parents taught us, we get up on the bike and we try again. We don't give up. We don't throw in the towel. The peace of God is something that we need to practice in order to get good at, just like anything else worthwhile in our lives. We practice and we get better. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. So prayer, purity, and practice as we seek the peace of God and finding that place of peace with him. We have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you have questions about the message at all, be happy to chat about that. We can grab a coffee or do whatever and just keep the conversation going. There was a Civil War general uh, I've mentioned him before, and his name was Stonewall Jackson, which is just uh, sounds like a Civil War general. Just sounds like he was made for that. And he fought in the war, and he got a reputation for bravery very early. He was a very devout Christian. And he got the nickname Stonewall Jackson because in one of the early battles of the war, uh, he was leading his men, and generals generally kind of lead from the back, right? You send the troops where you want to go. Uh, and so his men were out, and the fighting was fierce, and they were retreating. And so he charged into the middle himself and was trying to rally them. He stood in the middle of the battlefield and was calling his men forward. And bullets were whizzing all around him, and cannons are exploding all around him. And one of his colleagues saw him there and said, Look, General Jackson stands there like a stone wall. And the troops saw, and they were rallied by his bravery, and they charged back onto the field, and they won the battle. And so Stonewall Jackson, the nickname stuck. Uh, and yet, it all really came out of his trust in God. It came out of his walk with the Lord. And when he was asked specifically, how are you so peaceful in the middle of a, a crazy, chaotic battlefield? He said, my religious belief, my Christian belief, teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to always be ready, no matter when it may overtake me, 
that is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. I don't concern myself with that. I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me to understand. He found that place of peace, that trust in the Lord entirely. And in the picture of the psalmist today, uh, to be like that weaned child, not agitated, not mad at God, not struggling with things that are just too great, but to be at peace, to have calmed and quieted ourselves. To say, you know what? The peace of God is worth working for. It's worth practicing for. It's worth pressing in for. It's worth fighting for. It's worth holding on to when we have it. That as things happen in life that are, are big and that are scary and that are too wonderful for us to understand, that are we have the tough questions, we have the struggles, we have everything that goes with it. But even in the midst of all of that, there is peace available to us as we connect with the source of all peace and find that place of peace resting with Him. Would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to close?